Well, last week we finished our series on the Lord's Prayer, and I have to tell you, that series really affected me in my prayer life. It really caused me to think more seriously about those words of the Lord's Prayer. Am I really committed to God's will? Do I really want to win the victory over temptation and sin in my life? Or do I really want to forgive other people so that that I myself may be forgiven? And there's some real challenging um, things in that Lord's Prayer, but I, I want to encourage you to keep praying that and mean it from your heart. And let's see what God does in our prayer lives as we take seriously this invitation to draw close to our Heavenly Father. Today we're starting a new series called Better Together. Um, Pastor Sam and I are going to partner together in this series. I'm going to launch it today with just looking generally at why this is so significant in our lives. You are better with other people in your lives, and there are people around you who are better because you're in their lives. And so as a church, we want to encourage all of us to learn to appreciate the fact that God has put us together with this um, gift called community. And and by community, we mean the, the connection of one life with another life. God designed us exactly for that, to know and be known, to care and to be cared for. The problem with the contemporary model of church, the one that we've all grown up with, is that um, we, we look at church primarily as going into a place where I focus on my relationship with God, I sing songs of worship to Him, I hear a message that helps me walk with Him, and I stare at the backs of people's heads for 75 minutes. But that's not what the church was designed to be like. It was designed to, yes, um, encourage our relationship with God and learn to walk with Him, but, but when we all get together, we've got to learn to be connected. We can't just be a, a random uh, um, collection of people who are disconnected from each other. We are the body of Christ, and we truly are to care for one another. And so we want to encourage you as we go through this series to kind of get outside your comfort zone, to get outside your personal preferences, and to invite other people into your life. And I know what some of you are thinking, like, Pastor, I really don't need other people in my life. My life's complicated, and if I invite more people in, I invite drama. And I don't need any more drama or problems in my life. I've got enough of my own. And I acknowledge the fact, people introduce difficulties and challenges and messes into your life. My wife and I are in this beautiful stage of life called the empty nester phase. How many of you are in the empty nest phase? Isn't that a beautiful phase? I mean, you, you open up the refrigerator and the food that you put there yesterday is still there. And, and you, you know where the remote is. And you know, all the st- there's gas in the car and all these things that are just nice. And then you could travel and come home and it's just quiet. And we love it. But you know what we also love? Having our kids in our lives and seeing our grandkids. And we love that our lives would not be complete without them. And if you have ever been a parent, even if you've raised your kids, you know this. Having kids invites problems and challenges into your life. Because it's easier without them, right? If you want an easy life, don't have kids. You want a blessed life, have kids. Because along with people come the messes and the dirty diapers and the problems and all that. But honestly, I would not change any of that for a moment. For the blessing of having those people in my life. I changed my grandson's oh awful diaper the other day. And you know what? It's done in two minutes. And they were on with life. And, and oftentimes when we think of getting into a small group or getting close to other people, we, we focus on the messy part of it, the, the problem part of it. And I want to encourage you to look beyond it, just like with your own kids. There is such a blessing of being connected with other people. God wants other people to be part of our lives. It's, it's why he made us the way we are. I've taken a number of personality tests over the years, and all of them come back showing the same thing, that by nature, I'm an introvert. 
By nature, I find energy being by myself, being away from the crowds. So, so here's the difference between an introvert and an extrovert. An introvert draws energy, kind of gets replenished by getting away from everybody, by going off on a hike, reading a book, I mean, getting alone. An extrovert finds energy getting with people. So if, if you're an extrovert and you hear there's a party, you want to be in there. You want to be part of it. You want to be where the action is because you go crazy being by yourself. And it's just the difference. We, we, we have extroverts in the church and we have introverts in the church. And we do things in the service that really appeal to, to each of you at different times. So we have communion that's very much introvert, right? And sometimes we have greeting times or times in the, in the, in the foyer and that's extrovert time where you get to mingle with other people. And sometimes it means getting outside of what's comfortable for you to develop another part of your life. And so I want to share with you that, that, that this value of community is something that God designed us for. In fact, I'd say this is the summary of today's message. God designed us to live in community both now and forevermore. And what I want to do is walk through some scriptures today to show you that community isn't just a church program, isn't just like a fad. We're trying to get people connected with one another, and that's just, 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 just something to do to keep people busy and occupy time. But that phase is going to run its course, and then the church will come up with a different plan. No, it's always been God's plan to connect us in smaller units with one another. And so I want to encourage you as we go through today and the next few weeks to open yourselves to the beauty of getting close to other people. So would you pray with me? Father, as we open up your word, would you speak to us? Would you guide us? Will you help us to have your heart? You invest deeply in people. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Where does community start? If we go back in time, it goes actually on before the Bible that community exists in God's own nature in the Trinity, in the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is a big Bible word. Um, it's, not even, it's not a word that's actually found in the Bible, but the concept is there in the Bible. What the Trinity means is this. Tri is three, and, and unity is one. So it's this idea that three are one. The idea that God is one, but reveals himself in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How they all work together is kind of a mystery because we're trying to get our heads wrapped around this concept of how can three persons be one person and we don't quite grasp it. That's why we're human and not God. God God has told us about his own nature in Scripture that, that the Father is God and that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God and they're all uncreated all-powerful, all-knowing, gracious, true, righteous. They all share the same traits but have kind of a different function. Probably the closest thing I can think to it, it's not a great illustration, but it's close, is H2O. Now, we know, we know H2O as what? Water. But if it's below 32 degrees, H2O is what? Ice. And it's above 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it's steam. All H2O. So you have Ice, which is a solid, water, which is a liquid, and steam, which is a gas, all H2O. Three different displays of the very same chemical makeup. Now, of course, God is much more complex than H2O, but that's just, just maybe a little, little way that we can grasp the fact that three are unified, are separate, yet one. That is the Trinity. And the Trinity operates in perfect harmony and unity we see that in, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, 
Probably the most visible place is in the baptism of Jesus. So here Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when John baptizes this physical man named Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, he's baptized, comes up out of the water, and he hears a voice. In fact, people around heard a voice, the voice of the Father. And the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then this thing began to descend upon Jesus. It said, they, they said it looked kind of like a dove. It wasn't a bird, but it, it descended like a dove, very loftily came upon Jesus, and it was the Holy Spirit. Here we have Jesus, God's Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, all present at one time, separate but unified in affirming what had just taken place. They worked together in beautiful harmony. The, the Father sent the Son Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins. When Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit then to live within us and to enable us to walk with him and become more like Christ. Jesus says, I'm here to glorify the Father. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm here to glorify the Son. It's like this perfect symmetry and unity within the Godhead of, of, of submission and order and unity. And so when, when Jesus looks to us as humans... He says, I want you to have that same kind of unity. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes about this kind of unity we're to have. He says, there's one body and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, God's spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Next verse. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. There you have the, the spirit, the Lord, Lord Jesus, God the Father, all saying, these are things you have in common. You share these things in common. There, there's seven things that Paul identifies there saying there's one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. I mean, one, 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 just reminding them, you guys have a lot in common. You guys have a lot that should unify you. And that's God's desire that you experience unity. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, in the Great Gethsemane Prayer, and by the way, your bulletin says chapter 20, it's actually um, chapter 17. Jesus said, he's praying for his disciples, my prayer is not for them alone. So he's going to pray for you and me. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in You are in me and I am in you. So he says, I want them to have the same kind of unity we have within the Godhead. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What Jesus is saying is that the unity of believers is something so countercultural that it it would give proof to people that there really is a God. Because when you look at culture and you look at how people get along, they don't get along well. Nations fight against nations. Ethnic groups hate ethnic groups. Even in our own United States of America. And we thought we, had, we thought we solved things with the civil rights movement. And yet there's so much tension racially in our culture still today. And it's all because of, of, of sin that's in our lives. So God made us to be unified. And he wants us to have the same kind of unity that, that the Father has with the Son who has with the Spirit. It's not a very good testimony to the world when they look around and see that there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of different denominations. Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic, Assembly of God, Christian, Episcopal, Presbyterian, you know, all these. says, which one's the right one? How come they all can't get along? As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a lot of churches are hiding their denominational labels now, and they just wanted to be known as a church. In fact, I love the fact that here in Colorado Springs, 
a lot of the churches come together every couple months in a meeting called the Merge. And the Merge is where senior pastors from different churches come and say, hey, we are part of one church. And we will work together and pray together for the success of the church, not our individual churches. Here in the Fountain Valley, every um, well, second Thursday of every month, a group of pastors from different churches come together and we pray for our community and our witness in the community. People long to see unity. And God designed us to have unity. And so he modeled it in his own nature and says, just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in this perfect unity, you live in unity. And so then we see it expanded in the establishment of the family. In the book of Genesis, we find the, the, the creation order like this. God makes all the, the land and the sea, makes animals, and the pinnacle of his creation is man. And every day at the end of the creation, he says that things were good. But then he says there's something that's not good. He says it's not good that man lives alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And to reveal this need to Adam, he says, Adam, I want you to name all the animals. And so the animals, and they're, in, they're, they're at least in pairs. I don't know if there's more than two of each, but they're at least in the pairs. And they're brought to Adam, and Adam names all of them. And it says that Adam became aware that there was no suitable helper for him. In other words, there was, there was nobody that was like his partner, that was like him, that he could communicate with, share life with. So here's what God did. God, God took a rib out of Adam when he was asleep, and he fashioned a woman to be his helper, to come along beside him. Now, I need to share with you that this word helper doesn't mean he was to be man's assistant or servant. The word helper there is actually the same word that's used of God in the Bible, that God is our helper. Woman was made to rescue man from his loneliness. And you know what? I've watched men over the years, and this is, this is true for the most part. Some cases it's different, but for the most part it's true that women are more sociable than men are. Women tend to gravitate to other women and connect far better than men connect with other men. Men tend to be lone rangers. You watch a bunch of widows, they get together. Uh, you, you see a bunch of widowers, and oftentimes they're very isolated. We men have trouble. I don't know if it's our egos or, or lack of communication skills or what it is, but we have more trouble. And so God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a woman to come along beside you, and together you're going to become one. You're going to experience community. He says this in Genesis 2, verse 24. This is the picture of the unity. A man leaves his father and mother as, and is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One flesh. Meaning they're going to they're gonna become unified as a couple. Now that's a beautiful picture of marriage. Probably something that was talked about at your own wedding. And while it's great theoretically, it's tough practically. To bring two different persons together and help them to become one. It's difficult. I'm speaking from personal experience. It's very difficult to become one with another imperfect person. Two imperfect people together is, is a recipe for disaster, and we need God's help. That's why, as a church, we offer this program called Reengage. What is Reengage? It's a, it's a four-month course that gets couples together with other couples who want to make their marriage better. In the process of, of learning of how to bring God in a greater way into our marriage, we find our relationships become healed. And it's so great to be with other couples who want to make their marriage better because we encourage one another and we learn from each other how to do that. This past semester, my wife and I had the privilege of leading a small group within our Reengage program. And uh, one of the couples was Michael and Janet Brugger. And they told us as we got toward the end of the course that this class, 
save their marriage. So I, I want you to watch and hear their own testimony, and I'll just give you a warning. This, this video, I took the video footage myself, and it looked great on my phone, but, but, but just buckle yourself in, take a Dramamine, it's a little bumpy, but I want you to listen to the words of their message, okay? Watch this. church one Sunday and on the church bulletin there was the um, announcement about the re-engage uh, class. I looked at it for I think about two weeks and then I decided let's let's do it and I asked Michael rather I told Michael we're going to take re-engage because I think it's something that we really needed. Uh, I knew our mar- marriage was at a stalemate. Um, we were drifting apart and as each month went each month went by, we were drifting farther and farther apart, and it was at a point to where we needed to do something. Reengage helped Michael and I to reconnect. We had gotten to the point where we were like two ships in the night, just drifting apart, um, meeting, saying hello, and then just each going our different ways. Reengage helped us to reconnect and to start talking to one another rather than at one another. And we began to look at our relationship as something that was precious and something that we needed to work on rather than just separate and go our different ways. That's not what God wants for marriage. God wants us to work on our marriages. It saved our marriage, to put it bluntly. Um, In our marriage, we existed, but we didn't really connect. Uh, Our marriage kind of fizzled towards the end. And re-engage really re-established our marriage. Uh, Re-engage really helped us to see one another as partners for life rather than just walking away from our marriage and our relationship. We really um, saw ourselves as mates for life and God put us together and that's where we needed to be. By the way, uh, we have nine more spots in the next re-engage course that starts in August. And Barry and Susan and Seth and Dee Dee Lake are out in the foyer at that Long Connections counter. They're dressed up like in wedding gear um, because they believe in the beauty of marriage. And so if you want to make your marriage better, um, get signed up. There's information in your bulletin of how you can do that as well. But God brought this couple together to really to form the first small group, a man and a woman, but he wanted it to go beyond that. So here's what God told Adam and Eve to do, Genesis 1.28. He says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There are two mandates. The first one's called the, um, the domestic mandate. Be fruitful and increase in number. Have lots of babies. And have your children grow up and have lots of babies. I would say that's, that's, that's a, a, a fun command to obey, Right? Fun command to obey, and we've done pretty well with it. 7.5 billion people on the planet. I'd say Adam and Eve obeyed that pretty, pretty well. The other com- command was called the, uh, the dominion mandate, which is to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, there, there's land, there's animals, and there's vegetation. Cultivate it. Help things to grow. Um, take charge of it. Don't let the weeds and just nature run its course. Harness, harness the, the blessings and the resources that I've given you. You'll need it for food. You'll need it for clothing and for other things. And so this process of, of Adam and Eve having children automatically expanded community where the, this home became the, the natural network for people to feel a sense of belonging, to know that someone cared for them and that they could care for others. And all through the Old Testament, God expanded that through the nation of Israel. 
where, where families and tribes and clans existed so that people would have a sense of belonging, that I have a place. But here's the problem. Sin entered the picture. And it began to divide people and separate people and cause hardship. And all of a sudden, brother was killing brother. And parents were being separated from their kids. And husbands and wives were, were breaking their marriage vows. And this was not becoming the tight-knit community that God designed it to be. And I see it so often today that you think that families are close, but they're not always close. I've met so many families where there's, there's a sibling who won't talk to other siblings. There's a, a child who will not talk to certain parents. And, and when there's a death in the family, quite often, all those things start to surface and the, and, the, and the feelings and the emotions and the dysfunction within that family. We need help. And in order to have unity within the family, it cannot come from the blood that we share with each other. It has to come from blood from someone else, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And that's how God rescued community through the cross. Community is established in the family, but it is rescued through the cross. Let's look at that for a little bit. Sin wreaked havoc on all kinds of relationships. And we just look around today and just see nations against nation. Go to the Middle East. My wife and I were watching a documentary the other day on the nation of Israel. And within the nation of Israel exists the three major religions of the world. Judaism. Islam, Christianity. There are people from all three faiths living in that region. You know what's interesting? They all, they all have something unique in common. They're the only religions that believe in one God. Monotheism, one God. They all believe in the authority of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They all share some common history biblically, and yet they don't get along. So we hear about the Israelis versus the Palestinians or the Jews against the Arabs. And, and you, you look at the map there, and there are literally walls, towering walls built throughout Israel, separating one from another. There are armed guards on either sides of the walls. You think, how in, how in the world in this place where God supposedly is so present, there is such division? It's because unity will not come by natural means. It has to come by supernatural means. And it comes through Jesus Christ and us finding that common ground at the foot of the cross. See, when you think of the cross, think of these two beams. There's a, there's a vertical beam and there's a horizontal beam. And I think there's something very powerfully symbolic in that. Because the vertical beam seems to represent the fact that through the cross, I'm reconciled with God. I have this relationship with God, and I'm reconciled because of what Jesus did at the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Uh, Sin was that barrier between us and God. Jesus died for our sins, removed the, the, the penalty. We're now united with God, and we love that fact. But one of the dangers is thinking that that's all that matters is that I have this relationship with God because there's another beam to the cross. It's the horizontal beam. I'm not only reconciled with God, I'm to be reconciled with other people, with other people. I I mentioned the the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, Paul addresses that in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 15. It says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. The two meaning Jews and non-Jews, or Jews and Gentiles. 
thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And there we see even the Trinity at work. We see this access to the Father made possible because of the sacrifice of the Son through whom we have access by the Spirit. And all this is because of what Jesus did at the cross. That dividing wall of hostility was torn down through Jesus' death on the cross. We don't have to be enemies. I I, I can't help but think of those famous words that, that President Reagan spoke in 1987. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. You know, just the, the chill of, of seeing that wall start to come down and get toppled and freedom and reconciliation made possible. Jesus tore down the wall that divides us between other nations, between other races, between the sexes, between ages, between economic classes, everything. Those walls are torn down. Why? Because now we all find this bridge that we all cross over the river of sin and death Because of Jesus. He is the mediator. He is the pathway to God. We all come to Christ the same way because we all have the same need. We all have sin in our lives. And Jesus bridges that gap. And so the two greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it doesn't end there. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The the vertical and the horizontal, they're both to be part of our lives. And that's why we exist as a church. In fact, I think that's why God created the church The church celebrates community and celebrates relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. We see that at the very beginning when the church was formed on the day of Pentecost. Uh, People came to Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of people came for this festival called Pentecost. While they were there, uh, just some miraculous things happened. The Holy Spirit fell on the apostles. They began to preach. They began to speak in the languages of all the people and preach this good news about Jesus. And while they preached, it says the people's hearts were pricked. And they cried out, brothers, what should we do? And he says, you know, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so 3,000 people were baptized that day. And you know what they did the very next day? They were so hungry to grow that they did this. It says in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It was like, we are so hungry to grow. How do do we grow? Let's get together. Let's listen to the things the apostles are teaching us. Let's fellowship. By the way, that doesn't mean let's have coffee and donuts. It It means let's get together, share our lives with each other, and let's pray, break bread. Now, that's a reference possibly to communion, but even bigger, this this meal that they shared together. They said, let's do this. Let's share life together. This isn't just about us and God. It's about us together. We're going to grow together in this journey with God. And so you go down to verse 46 of the same chapter of Acts, and it says this. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They, they, they met at the temple courts. That's like we're doing today. We're meeting together in large group. And then, then, they, then they separated and went to small groups in homes. And really, those two things, large group, small group, ought to be part of every believer's life. The large group, listen to the proclamation of God's word, uh, learn what we are to be doing as a church, but then you need a small group. The small group is where we really apply God's word. We learn to wrestle through the implications for our lives. We learn to encourage one another to live out God's word. Big group, small group, we need them both. So right now, you're part of the big group. That's good. What about the small group? We need to be involved 
in the small group. My wife and I have been involved in small groups most of our married life, and I'd have to say my deepest friendships within churches have come out of my small group experiences because that's where you learn to care for one another and pray for one another and help one another in times of needs. That's where people get to know you and care about you and know about your needs because you, you don't feel comfortable doing that with everybody. You, you need a small group of people who will come beside you. Recently, we've had some real big tragedies within the church. We, we had a, a couple get in an accident. I mentioned last Sunday, they were in an accident. The husband was killed. In the accident, left, left behind his wife and his father and three daughters and grandkids. It's just traumatic experience for that family. And then, then Thursday, a young man in our church, a father with two young kids, passed away. And then last night, a family in our church, you may have seen it on the news, that was a family in our church that had their house burned down in, in this community. And you have these needs all around us. And you know what? Generally, everyone doesn't respond the people that respond are those who have come to know them and come to know them personally, who feel like they can, they can enter into the scene at a time of crisis. And by the way, I, I've watched this happen. It kind of bugs me a little bit. People will, people will come and visit someone who's in a crisis and say, hey, if you need anything, give me a call. I can tell you they will never call you. They will never call you because they know their true friends don't need to be asked to step in. The true friend says, hey, I'm bringing a meal over. What time can I drop it off? We're taking your kids. We're taking them to the movies so you can have a break. We'll be there at 5 o'clock. I mean, they just step in. So it might make us feel good to say, hey, if you need anything, let me know, because it makes me feel good to have said that, so I'm off the hook. But if you're a real friend, if you're the one that's walking through life with them, if you've been involved in a smaller setting, you're the kind of person that says, hey, do you know what? I'm going to be there. I'm just going to show up. I'm the one that's going to go over and open up your refrigerator and take a look and see if you've got anything in there because I care about you. Love, love, honestly, love doesn't have to ask permission. Love just acts. And we all need people in our lives because when, when you get that call saying, there's cancer or my spouse has died and you're trying to figure out who to call, I hope you have a group of friends that you've invited to get close to you because those are the ones that want to come and help. They're the ones who will be there in your time of need. And we all need that, that group of people that cares for us and who we care for. And that's the small group. And the church exists. We're going to encourage you over the coming months, be connected to a small group. And I know it's messy and I know it's, it's hard work. But we have a responsibility. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, Paul says, In Christ, though many, we form one body and each member belongs to all the others. You belong to each other. Let, let's, let's act like we belong to each other, like we need each other. Francis Chan is a pastor that I've just always admired because he's, he's so humble and so honest about the things he wrestles with. And a, a few years ago, he left his role as a senior pastor at a church that was over 5,000 people in San Diego, or somewhere out in California, and decided to uh, seek God's will because he was discouraged of what his church had become. And one of the signs that things had gone wrong was a conversation regarding a young man who'd left a gang and that was baptized in his church. This, this young kid, it turned his life around, but after a few months, he disappeared from the church and someone located him and said, hey, hey, what's going on? We haven't seen you at church for a long time. And here's what that young man said. He says, I guess I didn't understand church. When I was baptized, I thought that was like going, like it was going to be jumped into the gang where it's like 24-7, they're my family. I didn't know Church was somewhere we attended on Sundays. 
And Francis Chan said that made him so sick to think that a gang knows how to do family better than the church. He said, we have got to change that. We've got to change that. He says, I can't live with that. And so we, we've, we have a motto we're sort of talking about at staff that relationships are worth fighting for. Relationships are worth fighting for. We deserve to have relationships. And I know, again, they are messy, they are complex, they, they invite trouble in our lives, and that's where the blessings come, by walking the journey with others. And, and finally, we're going to be doing that forever because community is preserved forever in heaven. Recently, someone shared with me that, that there's a possibility the rapture could take place this fall. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a, it's a biblical teaching that there's coming a time where Jesus will secretly extract the believers from this earth. And it's based on a passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to this verse. But I want to focus on one word in this verse. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the air. Who's them? The ones who've already died. The believers who've already died. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. But the word I want you to focus on is together. We will be together. See, that's what heaven is. It's a great family reunion. We're going to be together with him forever. In Revelation 7, 9, it's this great description of what heaven's going to be like. And, and John, who wrote Revelation, says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All these people gathered together. God's great family reunion in heaven. We're not just going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with each other. And we're going to be with each other forever. Let's get along. Let's learn to love each other now and then carry that into eternity. Doesn't that make sense? Gilbert Bilizekian, who helped found Willow Creek Community Church, a, a very influential church in Chicago, wrote this in a book. The establishment of community was God's dream for his creation from the very beginning, and he has pursued it all along history and will continue to do so to the very end of time. Since we're made for community, we're going to be doing it forever. Let's get good at it here. Let's, let's get out of our comfort zones. You know, for the longest time, I had this little cop-out that, that protected me from other people. It was this, this view that I was a shy person. And people would often say to me, teachers would tell my parents, you know, Darren's a good student, but he's shy. And then someone, when I got older, said, do you know, for most people, shyness is a cover-up for selfishness. And I went, wait a minute, it is not! <laughs> and then I started thinking through it. The reason I was shy was because I didn't want to be complicated with other people's problems. I was more worried about what people thought of me. And I started realizing it, it really does sound selfish, doesn't it? And you know, some people would think that I'm more of an extrovert. I'm not. I'm still an introvert. But you know what, what motivates me to connect with other people? It's just God wants me to love them. I mean, love, love doesn't look for an excuse not to love. Love doesn't say, well, I'm shy, so I shouldn't love others. I shouldn't find out what their needs are because I'm a shy person. Love says, the heck with me. It's not about me. It's about that person. That person looks like they're hurting. I better go talk to that person. That person's crying. They need someone. I better go be that person. Love gets you out of your comfort zone. Love gets you out of your shell. But love is a beautiful thing to share. And I wish we would be more like the dogs. You know, have you ever taken your dog to a dog park? Anybody ever do that? 
Man, we get our big dogs, two golden retrievers, they're like 70 pounds each. We get to the dog park, and it's like, oh, I can't hold them back, getting them to the actual gate. And then we unhook their leashes, and they take off running. And guess where they go? To the other dogs, to their, their buddies that they've never met before. <laughs> and I can't describe the ritual of how they get to know each other, but <laughs> it involves their nose and a lot of sniffing. And we don't have to do that, folks. We don't have to do that. Amen. I'm thinking, if you're in a group of people, let's, they're like, they're relatives. They're family. They're part of God's family. Let's get to know them. Let's get to love them. Let's get to uh, make them part of our lives. Let's, instead of hiding in the dim lights and, and, and shadows of a church, let's get out of our comfort zone. And really, all I'm asking you to do is, let's just learn to love each other. Our, our world is starved for that kind of love. And so church ought to be the best place to practice it.